Today's episode is brought to you by Khadija Queen's Anodyne, a collection of poems at once formally dynamic and searingly personal that asks us to recognize the echoes of history that litter the landscape of our bodies as we navigate a complex terrain of survival and longing. Writes Alex Lemon, Khadija Queen's poems are fire and sacred song. This is writing that makes the hardship of being alive transcendent. I recommend this book, Ilya Kaminsky says, to anyone who ever had a child or a parent, who ever had a body or loved, to anyone who has ever been sick or tried to sleep a good night's sleep and failed and tried again. Anodyne is out now from Tin House. This year's Tin House Summer Writers Workshop, even with all of the challenges of moving the workshop to Zoom and tons of uncertainty leading up to it, was in the end an unbridled success. And moving to a remote format even had some unexpected side benefits. One of these was the moving to the foreground of a different type of event. During the normal in-person conferences, there are workshops in the morning, and in the afternoon there are panels and craft talks and then readings at night, all of which have been reflected in various Tin House Live episodes that we've aired over the year. But a rarer event became much more common with everything moving remote and the ability to more easily invite people to participate when they weren't otherwise part of the faculty during the morning workshops. And that is an unmoderated conversation between two writers at the top of their craft, talking about a theme or a question that animates both of their writing lives. This year, there were many of these conversations, and we're excited to bring you the first one today. The one Lance, the director of the workshop, came to me with immediately after the workshop ended, saying, we should definitely start here. The conversation today is with the amazing Melissa Phoebos, who has been a past guest on Between the Covers, where she talked about her essay collection, Abandon Me, and who has another essay collection, Girlhood, coming out next year. Phoebos teaches in the nonfiction writing program at Iowa and was on faculty at Tin House this summer. Phoebos was in conversation with the incredible Basi Ikbi, the author of the New York Times best-selling, I'm Telling the Truth, But I'm Lying, and founder of the Seaway Project, a nonprofit dedicated to promoting mental health awareness throughout the global black community to widen the public dialogue regarding the lived experiences of people of African descent with mental illness. Together, their conversation is called The Anatomy of Melancholy, where they explore how to make narrative and aesthetic sense of the most difficult parts of one's past. At one point, Melissa says in this conversation that in a way, form is content. And this conversation about finding the right form when one's own story doesn't fit within received forms of culture or the literary world resonates with so many other conversations on Between the Covers. For sure, with other nonfiction writers from Carmen Maria Machado to Brian Blanchfield, but also with some of the writers of fiction, with John Keane, with Richard Powers, and poets from Tyam Bajess to Lele Long Soldier to Jen Bourbon. But before we give it over to Melissa and Bassi, I wanted to give you an update on my Between the Covers campaign. The quick recap, if you haven't listened to the last episode, is that I'm experiencing a big life change with my job of 22 years ending, thanks to the pandemic, and me prematurely doing what I've been aiming for for a while, making hosting the podcast my main occupation, not just in terms of hours, but also hopefully financially. Last week, I talked about how somewhere between 1% and 2% of listeners are also supporters, and that I hope by the end of the year to increase that to between 2 and 
or about a 50% growth so that I can continue to dedicate my time to the show. I imagined then that I would report back in a month or maybe six weeks on how things are going, but I'm reporting back just a week later because so much has happened since then. If you listened to the Nikki Finney episode several months ago, really one of the all-time most remarkable episodes of the last 10 years, so please do if you haven't yet. But if you have listened, you probably remember the excerpts I read of a speech that Ross Gay gave about Nikki Finney, a speech so full of love for her and for her work, and one that he delivered with Nikki in the audience. I only had this speech to use as part of this conversation because a supporter of the show is good friends with Ross and with Ross's permission passed it along. And I remember wondering with her, with this friend of Ross's, with the supporter of Between the Covers, how Nikki bore it, how she bore being in the audience while all of this love was directed her way. And she imagined it must have felt like staring into the sun. And I can say that the last week for me has been like that, like staring into the sun. In the last week, so many people, poets, podcasters, publishers, publicists, prose writers, professors, performance artists, and even people doing things that don't start with the letter P, accordionists, booksellers, translators have shared what the show has meant to them with friends and followers. And honestly, it has been so overwhelming and overwhelmingly moving. So I want to say thank you because just after one week, I'm over a third of the way toward my end of the year goal. And all of a sudden it all seems possible. So if you two value between the covers and have the means A mere $1 an episode or $24 a year is the entry level to join a community of Between the Covers listener supporters. And you can check out the wide variety of possible perks of doing so at patreon.com slash Between the Covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation via PayPal, you can do so at tinhouse.com slash support. If you're a fan of the show but can't contribute financially at this time, I hope you will share your love of the show on social media. I swear I can take it. And now, let's hand it over to Bossy Ikbi and Melissa Phoebus. Hi, everybody. Uh, hi, Bossy. Hi, Melissa. Um, thank you so much for doing this with me. Um, it's, it's weird and wonderful. Um, and, uh, I'm just pulling up my little, little notes. Um, I'm having such a good time here at Tin House. Um, I just want to say thank you to Lance and all the other faculty and all of the participants and especially my class. We've only met two times, but I feel like we're already a family, um, with our own familial lexicon and it's been really sweet. Um, And I am so excited um, for the people that uh, know your work but haven't heard you speak before and the people who don't yet know your work who are on this call um, because you're amazing. And hi. Hi. How are you? How are you? How's Iowa? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's intense. It's been a lot of things. It's really beautiful here. and you know we spent the first three weeks without any of our stuff it just arrived yesterday so it's been there's like some boxes behind me as well as danica um say hi danica everybody hi (laughs) um can i show you something that arrived this afternoon that i'm excited about that i know you'll understand Yeah. yeah This is the galley of my new book. It just arrived. And for those of you watching who um, have published books, you know that, um, at least for me, getting the advanced copy, it's like the first time that you hold your years of work and tears and everything in your hand before like any weird reviewers get their hands on it. And so it's like, uh, for me, it's one of the sweetest moments. So, um, Oh, congratulations. It's such a pretty book too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, 
So uh, I thought that it would be really perfect for you and I to have a conversation here because my students at Tin House are all working on super intense, really amazing material, and they're in the middle of the process of figuring out the best form for it and sort of making their way through both the emotional and psychological and aesthetic and craft decision-making process with it. Um, and I know that you and I have both had like long, interesting, complicated processes like this. And I, I find that conversations about books like ours that deal with um, really personal, intense material that people don't often talk about in the course of daily life tend to sort of fall into two categories and they either sort of talk about the emotional experience of it um, and the personal experience of it and the, and the personal experience of writing about it or it's a craft discussion. And it's much more this kind of conversation than it is a craft discussion. This is the one you usually get with writers. Um, and for me, it's those two processes are so deeply entangled, right? Like it's, it's, it, it's they're inextricable for me um, to separate sort of the experience of revisiting and moving through my past experiences and making sense and story out of them and also the aesthetic project of making art out of them, you know? Um, so I thought maybe we could start um, by uh, if you, could you describe your book for the viewers tonight a little bit um, and maybe talk a little bit about how, about your process of arriving at the form that those essays ended up taking? Oh, I knew this question was coming and I still am trying to figure out how to, how to answer it. Um, for, for category purposes, um, it's a collection of essays. But what I was writing and, and what I, I feel is that I was writing a, a collection of nonfiction short stories. Um, it's very important for me to have that distinction because I wanted to be able to write this truth as though it was fiction, you know, um, because that was the best way for me to tell the story as accurately um, as I could. Uh, there's no way for you, for me, to have told um, a story about living with bipolar disorder um, from a non-clinical, non-technical uh, perspective. Um, it was very important to me that it wasn't full of, you know, statistics and, you know, wiki facts and nine out of every 10 this and every fourth that. I didn't want any of that. I wanted it to be as true as possible to my experience because I wanted it to convey, um, I wanted to be able to explain to people what this was, what it feels like, what it, what it, what, what is confusing about it for me, how it feels to live in it. Um, and the best way to do that was to be able to throw away everything everyone had told me, except for you, um, had told me about what it means to write uh, nonfiction. Um, so the book is about a person living with um, a brain that is trying to figure itself out um, without any language for it, just the experience and trying to figure out the best way to convey that experience to people who needed to know and may not understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that works. That works. It's also quite beautiful and very intense. Um, yeah, it's the kind of book that you don't ever want to take a break from reading, but that sometimes you kind of have to take a break from reading because you're so, it's such an, um, intimate gateway into into that really immediate experience. Um, would you talk a little bit, because I know that the book sort of started off as one concept, and then when you were actually like on the page working it out, it completely sort of transformed a little bit. And yeah. something we've been talking about in my class is like having a plan at the beginning and how important it is to have a map that you feel comfortable with and also how important it is to be willing to like crumple it up and throw it away when the work starts talking to you about what form it actually needs to be in. So I feel like your story about that would be really helpful. Yeah, so the book that I sold, I sold the book that we sold was not the book that I ended up writing. And I struggled um, with that initial book because I was trying to fit uh, again, I was trying to fit what people told me a nonfiction or memoir or whatever was supposed to be 
Um, I what it wasn't supposed to be in these, you know, these stories. It's supposed to be a standard, you know, she was born this day and then some stuff happened when she was four and then when she was seven. Like it was it was it was supposed to fit that. But then I also had this added pressure that I gave myself of making it inspirational some for some reason. Um, for some reason I wanted people to feel uh inspired by me and feel like, oh, she's doing so well and and <laughs> she's she won bipolar disorder. I don't know, um, <laughs> but I. But the 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 irony, I guess, is that I wasn't. I was struggling. Uh, 2016, when I started writing the book, um, was one of the most difficult periods of my life, and I honestly did not believe that I was going to come out of it. I thought that was that was it. So me trying to write this book that was completely filled with lies and 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 trying to to re rewrite my story to make it better for for me or better for the people who would read it if I wasn't around. Um, I was trying to create this mythology for myself and I struggled so hard to write the book that I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to write it at all. Um, I read your book, um, Abandon Me. I read um, the, the Shape of Water. Um, I read these different books that were doing they were they were speaking to me on a cellular level and i felt like i wanted that i wanted to be able to do that um but i couldn't do that with the consigns that i and the restrictions that i placed on myself and no one really had placed those things on me i decided that i was going to do this and um uh once i reevaluated the purpose of the book for myself i was able to let and, and and also I had an editor who was very open to my editor. She saw me struggling. She saw that I was turning in these essays that were just they're just terrible. They weren't about anything. Um, they had almost like like um, like some sort of like happy ending. Each 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 uh, essay had a had a had a lesson at the end, and it was just <laughs> terrible. It was bad. And um, I told her that I was struggling. The title of the book was, 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 was restricting me as well because the original title was um, Making Friends with Giants, which is this like, you know, this, this huge title that, that had all these implications that I just wasn't living up to. And, and once I, I gave myself permission and was given permission to just write whatever. And she said, write whatever, we'll figure it out. I'll edit it into something else. Um, I had to think about why I wanted to write a book. Um, as a black woman, I didn't know how many ch chances I was going to write, uh, get to write books. And, I, and as a person who was living with depression um, at the time, I didn't know how many books I was being, going to write. So I had to decide that if this was the only book, and it looks like it is, <laughs> the only book that I'm ever going to write, what do I want that book to do? And, and once I I, 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 I gave myself that out um, that no one could, you know, who's going to fight me? <laughs> that was, I kept thinking like, who's going to fight me if I write the book that I want the way that I want? And once I did that, and, 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 and also I'm all over the place, I was running from my poetry background. I was running from it. I didn't want to write a poetic book. I didn't want to write poems. I didn't want to write any of that. And um, running from that or, 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 or giving myself permission to go back to that freed me up in the way that poetry did when I first started writing it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, you absolutely answered my question. And I also relate to it so much, you know, like when I was um, writing Abandon Me, both in terms of the content and in terms of the structure, I had a very, you know, you don't really know what your beliefs are until you are confronted with an opportunity or the necessity of challenging them, right, sometimes. Yeah. And, yeah. and I had an idea about what an essay collection looked like, and it did not look like the manuscript that I had written. It did not have a bunch of short essays that sort of looked at the same events from different vantage points, and then one, like, super long motherfucker that was, like, 150 pages long. Like, that was not the book I had set out to write. And yeah. And even more sort of disconcerting was that I had been writing a story with a happy ending, with a particular kind of happy ending, because I was trying to live my way into that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And when I finished the first draft of like that final long essay in that book, I gave it to a good friend of mine who's not a writer, but was, is an anthropologist and 
had really sort of watched me live the experience. And after she read it, I was like preparing myself for compliments, you know? And, uh, and she called me and she was like, so this is really beautiful. Um, and it's also fiction. So she was like, I think you basically wrote the story that you wished was true. And also the version of this story that everyone who read it might be happy with and would not make anyone mad at you. And it's not true. So you need to decide if you want to talk about what really happened. And if you was it the same person, because I feel like (laughs) conversation with somebody. Yeah. It's painful, but then like, you know, that first step is agonizing. And then when you step into it, suddenly there's so much more possibility, right? Because yeah. the story that um, we're trying to wish ourselves into is really rigid and small, which is why it feels so safe, right? And once yeah. you step away from it, like the possibilities of discovering what's actually true and, and you know, what has actually happened to you and who it's made you become possible. So I am really glad that you decided to write the book that you wrote. And I'll bet that you've gotten a million trillion letters from people talking about how inspired they are by your story, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I, 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 to this day, especially with what's going on with Kanye and, 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 and just the experiences that we're having now with COVID, everything that's happening in the world, um, I've, re- I've, I've, I've gotten feedback from people, I've received feedback from people who have said that, and this is like the biggest compliment for me, I didn't know how to say that. I didn't know how to explain this to my partner or to my parents or you know, my sibling, or even I have a sibling that I didn't understand or I have a parent that I didn't understand and, and reading your book, um, you know, put me in their mind. Uh, one of the, the, the best emails I got um, was from this woman who, whose son had been recently diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And she said that she read the book and she, so many times she's been like, just go to bed, just lay down, just, you know, and she said, I didn't know what was going on in his head or what was possibly happening in his head and reading your book and reading, you know, what it is and you explaining, this is why I can't go to sleep. This is why it's difficult to eat. This is why it's difficult to just go outside or just do all these things that, that well-meaning people suggest you do um, when they're trying to be helpful. Uh, stuff like that, it, it really makes me feel like, if nothing else does, it makes me feel like I did something and it makes me feel like um, uh, it was worth it. Um, and, and, and I'll be honest, like a lot about the book has not felt worth it, but stuff like that definitely, definitely feels worth it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, um, I'm wondering a lot of things. We're not going to get to them all, but um, <laughs> because um, you're not working at this uh, conference and so you won't be giving a reading, I was, I was hoping that maybe you would read a little bit for us from your book and maybe particularly so we can talk about it afterwards. Um, if there's a passage that was particularly sort of challenging to find the form for or to revisit the experience of, I mean, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, but yeah. And um, show the cover so they, so they know what to expect in their mailboxes after they order it after this conversation. This is the cover. Um, people have a hard time reading it and I thought it was pretty straightforward. <laughs> I love the cover. Just read it down and read it back up. Um, uh, there's an interesting story about the cover too. Um, they sent me an email, the publisher sent me an email saying, oh, we're going to, you know, send you a cover. You know, we hope you love it. And they sent it and I didn't love it. And, um, because I'm not a visual person, I didn't know how to tell them what I didn't like. I just knew that I didn't like it. And, And a really good friend of mine, Matthew is a graphic designer and I sent him the cover and he'd read some of the, 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 the stories and um, I asked him to help me craft an email to send to them to explain what I didn't like. And um, he said, okay, I'm busy right now, but in the morning I'll, I'll have an email for you. And in the morning he didn't have an email. He had seven cover mock-ups um, and this was one of them. And I okay. sent, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty cool story. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, uh, I had one in mind and then I changed my mind. You take, take a minute and I'll, I'll tell okay. people the file that I have. So 
Um, this is like a public service announcement, basically, because uh, this is a thing that happens for most people. Like the first cover they send you is often not, they're like, you're going to love it. We love it. And it's just like, not it. You know what I mean? And it doesn't, it's just, you know, there's a lot of um, tastes and intentions to sort of correlate to make a good cover. Um, but I was so picky and crazy about the hardcover for Abandon Me, which this is the one that they finally came up with, which Love I it. really besotted with. Um, but there were literally like 25 covers before that one. And I said no to so many and they were all over the map. And it got so that my like Libra people pleasing sensibility was so freaked out. I said to my agent, I can't say no anymore. And he was like, forget it. I'll just stop copying you on the emails and I'll do it. And I have saved all of those covers, some of which are good, they're just not the one in yeah. a file. And I tell all my students, like once you're at that place and you're negotiating the cover and you're afraid to say no, text me and I will send you the file of all of the covers I said no to so that you know you aren't the worst. I was the worst. So if you, in your next book, if you encounter it and your friend isn't available, I'll, I'm happy to send you those files Thank too. Thank you, but I appreciate that. Well, there'll be one. But I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, God bless everyone with a friend who will who will design them a replacement. But I mean, before I, before I read this, I, I just need everyone to know, and I'll say it again at the end of this, like the conversation that you we had over uh, coffee tea um, that first time when I was one of the things I was so scared about was other people in the book reading it and what they thought and, and how to write um, uh, how to write other people in a way that was kind to them. Um, and I don't remember your exact words, but I remember walking away from that conversation with a new understanding about how to approach other people in my book. Mm -hmm. um, because you wrote so kindly, but truthfully and honestly about the people in your life and, and, and so beautifully that it gave me permission to tell the truth, um, but tell it in a way that showed and covered everyone in it with, with love or respect or something. Um, so I really appreciated that. I'm so glad. I remember that day. You had just come up with your new title. You were like in the pivot towards like the full version of the book that you ended up finishing. So I yeah, that was the weirdest that. time. Um, okay, so I'm going to, this is probably not the right, but I'm just going to bite the bullet. So um, there is an essay in the book um, called, uh, and I just lost it, called This Is What Happens. Um, it's a very, very long story that is in the middle of the book. And I had to fight for this essay because they wanted to edit it down to about seven or eight pages. And it, so much of it would be lost if that happened. And I told my editor, either it all goes in with, you know, of course, edits that, that make sense, or it, it goes away. Like, there's no way to cut it in half. And what it is, is um, a story about a 24-hour period um, during, I was, I was uh, part of a, a deaf poetry jam, and I was on tour with them. And then I was also doing other tours, like college tours. And there was a 24-hour period when I was in between flights and I was in the midst of what I know now to be a mixed episode, hypomanic and, um, and depressed episode. And uh, I broke down this 24 hours into hourly minute intervals. And the reason for that was to show how much happens in, in my brain um, in like five minutes or in a minute and a half or however long. And, um, and I think that this illustrates, because there are other essays that I wrote afterwards that mimicked a depressive episode. So the, story, so the, um, the, the lines were really long and there were blocks of, of, of text and it just felt really slow. And I wanted to make sure that people were just as exhausted as I was. Uh, a lot of the feedback was by the time you got to 2 a.m. I was exhausted. I was like, me too. <laughs> I was also very exhausted at 2 a.m. after not sleeping for four days, you know, so um, yeah, so this is, uh, this is what happens. 
1.05 a.m. I'm so tired that I can't sit still. I don't understand this. If I sit, I shake so much that I need to stand. And when I stand, I need to move until I'm tired. But no matter how tired I get, I still can't sleep. I'm walking quickly from one side of the apartment to the other. I have to keep moving and my hands, I can only shake them, can only wring them, but never fast enough. Nothing is fast enough, not the pacing, nothing. Only the words dancing circles inside my head, the thoughts running and racing faster and faster until I'm begging for my skin to slide quickly off my bones. I spin around a few times searching for something that will make the stop. Maybe I'll tire myself out. I'll have no choice but to collapse from exhaustion. Maybe my heart will explode from beating too fast. Maybe this time I won't wake up. 1.30 a.m. Faith is a matter of interpretation. My belief in God has always been circumstantial. Disbelief requires too much proof. I don't have the time. 1.35 a.m. So for the next few minutes, I'll put everything I know into believing. 2 a.m. And God accepts no bargains. 2.01 a.m. I'm on the floor again, this time holding my head and rocking back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. This is not helping. 2.09 a.m. I'm waiting for this to kill me. 2.10 a.m. I have to stand up, move, more pacing, more wringing of hands, more holding. This trembling will not stop. 2.15 a.m. And God accept no bargains. 2.30 a.m. Bedroom, living room, kitchen, living room, bathroom, bedroom, living room, kitchen, living room, bathroom, kitchen, bedroom, kitchen, bathroom, living room, bathroom, kitchen, bedroom, kitchen, bedroom, living room, living room, living room, 2.50 a.m. I stand still and close my eyes. I start counting backwards from 2000, 953, 952, 951. It's working, keep pacing, keep counting. 493, 492, 491, 490, 489. Keep counting, it's working. 3 a.m., the shaking has lessened. 3.20 a.m., I get to one but keep my eyes tightly shut. I'm afraid if I open them, it will all return. 3.31 a.m., I wish I could sleep like this. 3.40 a.m., you can't sleep now. You have a plane to catch in a few hours. 4.05 a.m., I need water. Water always stays down. My body is both heavy and empty, but at least everything is quiet. Woo! They're all doing this at home, just so you know. Um, <laughs> it's like my heart rate is up. And um, I mean, you can see in the comments, people are going nuts, but it's, um, I mean, obviously she wasn't on Death Poetry Jam for nothing. <laughs> the professional reader. Um, it's crazy. It was like, uh, like it made me sweaty with anxiety. And also I felt like I could dance to it while you were reading. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I mean, this is just like a perfect example of, I can't wait to teach this essay. This is when you said you were going to read from it. I was so glad because it's one of my favorite in the book because it's such a, um, perfect, uh, you know, we talk a lot, especially in undergrad classes about like the relationship between content and form. And I think once you get to a sort of more sophisticated level, you start to understand that form is content right? And that you are communicating the meaning through the form, through the sound, um, through the movement of the work, and which is why, like, my body wants to move listening to it, you know, um, and why, like, I had to, like, stop and take some deep breaths after I finished that essay. I'm so glad that you fought for it in the book, because it feels like a vital organ to the picture that you're communicating with it. So thank, thank you so you. much for reading that. Um, I guess I'm wondering, like, I don't know, for me, so much of writing about experiences like this, experiences that were really hard to survive, that I had to sort of um, count the seconds to move through when they were happening. And in the process of writing, it feels sometimes like constructing a little model of what happened and then both sort of observing it and also stepping back into it to sort of move move through a pantomime of what happened so that I can fill in the blanks and so that I can sort of replace it in the context of like my current day consciousness and I'm wondering about that process for you and I guess like both sort of what it feels like to write that when you've lived it and then also how it might have adjusted your relationship to the past right and your relationship 
to that experience, you know? Um, like I said, in 2016, um, when I started writing something, uh, I was not doing well. I, I wasn't a healthy person and I was uh, going to therapy four or five times a week. Um, that's how concerned everyone was for me. And um, by the time you and I met, we had gone down to two or three times a week, but it was still more than the once a week. And now I'm like once a month. But um, had I not been in a space where I could discuss the things that I was writing um, and uh, remind myself, let me back up a little bit. Um, one of the things that came out of this book was me being able to look at everything that I'd been through all at once because it's very easy to separate things and say, oh, this thing happened and that was terrible and this thing happened and it was terrible and this thing happened and just sort of break things apart. Um, but when you look at everything together, what I kept coming back to was that I got out of it. Like I have, I have, I have, uh, I was going to say resurrected and that's so corny, but I have come out of so many things so many times that I actually felt powerful and I felt empowered by that. So it inspired me to keep going in and digging because now I wasn't afraid of falling into it. I was focused on how many times I got out and um, writing towards understanding that I was here and I am here and I had experienced all these things and I was still here. It made it much easier to go into that. It made it much easier to revisit them. Um, I was very careful about I wasn't there to just um, dig through traumas and leave wounds. I wasn't trying to do that. Uh, I think that a lot of times or often when people do that, they are, in, in, in some of the memoirs that I've written, I, I, I've wondered about the writer, like, are you okay? Because you just dug all this stuff out, left it. And I don't know, I don't know what happened. Not that I was nosy, but just like, are you okay? Because that's a lot that you just did there. And I didn't want to leave anyone, um, and I don't know if I did this successfully, but I didn't want anyone to leave wondering if I was okay. Like, I'm okay, you know? And I, and I cause that was something that was very important to me. Um, and there were some things, there were memories that were showing up as I was writing that I needed to deal with. Um, stuff from like my childhood, uh, things that I weren't, that, that I wasn't very clear about. And I wrote that, I'm not clear about this. I don't know what happened, I don't know I don't know what the details are. I'm not going to make up details. I'm just going to tell you that I don't know what happened, but I, I, I know something happened and I didn't feel it was necessary. I, I had some pushback where people wanted me to go in and like, you know, try and piece this together, try and figure out what this was. I was like, no, that's between me and my therapist. I'm not going to do this in this book. I'm not going to, 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 to find something just to place it in the book. And, and if it doesn't show up then it doesn't show up. Um, and I think that the, the book that I was writing gave me a lot of freedom to say, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to. I'll do other things and I'll be very clear about the things that I don't remember. Um, there's an essay in the book that I tell a story from three different perspectives because I don't remember exactly what happened. I know what I was told. I know what I told other people and I know what kind of happened. And I, and I was able to, to write every version of that. Um, uh, and that was helpful to me because it gave me a space to, to, to understand a moment in my past that I'll never fully understand. It, I don't know if that makes sense, but that was just as important to me as having concrete answers, if not more so. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, in some ways, I think that's particularly one of the obligations and the services that a nonfiction writer and an essayist and that memoirists can do is sort of demonstrate a working relationship to memory and to what happened. And part of the story is the sense that we're making out of our memories and the, the collaging that's constantly happening, whether we're conscious of it or not, between other people's memories that they're holding for us, the memories we're holding and the story that we're creating out of it right and yeah. that truth is is some chimera of all of those things all of the time right and so I think for yeah. you to offer that on the page it's so much more useful than to create the artifice of a perfectly formed memory where everything's in its place right it's yeah. um, 
it's a really sort of permission giving thing, especially for other writers to read, but really for everyone, I think. And I love what you said about um, just about the experience of sort of looking at the past and at those darkest moments and that being a way of understanding the vantage point that you're looking at it from and that you're okay. Like I felt myself getting choked up because in some ways like that's the exercise, right? Like I don't know I'm sitting here in the chair and that I've survived it fully until I look back and I see that it's over there now, what happened, yeah. you know? And so like that distance is um, in some ways for me, like the most precious part of, of reading people's stories like this and of, of writing it myself. Um, so um, I think we just have time for a couple more questions. It goes by so fast, but, I, but there's something that, um, that has come up a lot for me. Sorry, there's a chihuahua crying at the door in Tanika's <laughs> <laughs> um, And, you know, and I know it comes up a lot for, for my students. And I think when we're writing about these big events and we're like really putting our back into finding the right form for it. And it's like, you know, I wrote a whole book about being an addict and a dominatrix and you wrote a whole book about, you know, this experience. And for me, um, you know, these are the kind of events that, that make us, right? And that we are relating to for the rest of our lives. But there's always a part of me that feels like, oh, I wrote a book about that. Like I'm never allowed to talk about it again. <laughs> you know, mm. like that yeah. was it. The, you got 80,000 words and you're done now. You're 86, you can't talk about it anymore. Um, but actually my relationship to, to those things that made me and are making me, it's constantly growing and changing. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious about your relationship to that and, and sort of if you, if you have that fear and if you've walked through it and, uh, I don't know. I guess this is also kind of like a backdoor way of asking you what you're working on now. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting because um, I jokingly told people that I wrote this book like a white woman um, in that I just, you're just going to care about this. Um, <laughs> you're, you're just going to care about this, this person and, and the stuff that she's gone through because I, I, there was a lot of pressure also as a black woman to and I, and I had this moment too where should I write about the, the 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 black experience in a way that explains myself to white people um should I tie in Sandra Bland should I bring Trayvon into this should I should I do all these things that would make my book um more interesting to people who don't know or care about me right um but I have to decide that my story was enough and my story is enough. And I did go in saying anything that I say about myself, you're going to care about because you care about what's happening in here and not because you already care about something that looks like me or something that feels familiar, that your empathy has to come from something tangential. Um, I didn't, I, I was very clear that I didn't want that. There's a writer and I always forget her name and it always sounds like I'm being shady and I'm not, um, a white woman who wrote before the age of, of 30, I think she wrote like four different memoir from different perspectives of an eating disorder, of alcoholism. Then she discovered that she had a bipolar disorder. So she wrote her same story from that. So she just kept doing that. And I was like, bet. <laughs> oh, like, absolutely. Let's, let's do this some more, you know, because I think that, I think that as you grow and as you gain perspective, the same story you've told over and over stories that I've told about the book, things that I've, uh, uh, different perspectives that I've gained, even just from talking to people who were around at that time, I have a different understanding of what was going on, especially knowing that, um, that what I was experiencing because of the nature of it is very much in a bubble. And, and I don't know how I'm affecting other people. And it's very important to me that I do know, because I, I'm not someone who thinks that that everything I feel is, 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 is just mine. And, and it doesn't matter what anyone else feels. And cause I, I, I'm not a, I, I don't live in a, in, in a world by myself and I, and I care very much about the people in my life. So I'm very, um, I'm very, um, cognizant of the fact that my truth and my story is different than somebody else's truth and story. Right. Um, who has shared the same experience with me. So I want to go back now, especially now as, 
and every day I'm like the healthiest I've ever been in my life. And I say that every single day, but as this healthy person going back and looking at the stories from a healthier perspective, um, as opposed to, um, and, and not only that, like one of the things that I've, if I were to write a second book, which again, I don't know, um, I want to go back and go deeper into relationships because I think that what one another thing that I discovered when I, when I, after I wrote the book was that I've never had a healthy relationship. I've always entered either depressed or entered manic and, and I've never entered as a healthy person. And, and I wanted to go in deeper about my relationship, familial, platonic, romantic, everything in between and how I exist and how I presented myself because I haven't been the best person, you know, and I wanted to, to, to see, to, to, to write about what a manic relationship, hypomanic, what it means to, to put myself in situations that I have, you know, been dishonest about my feelings to people who have been very honest about them to me and, 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 and just do that. But I don't want to. <laughs> but well, if I were to. If that's you, what you do, I will read it. And I'm sure everybody on this on this webinar will also read it. Um, and I will say that like, I've encountered that over and over again. And I've had that resistance where it's like, oh no, I already took up too much space with this. Like I can't talk about it again from a different perspective. And I've never regretted yielding to it. And actually when I see other writers doing that, I find it fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it is, disrupting this story that we're not allowed to change our minds right which is yeah. actually an equivalent to to no longer growing right and when yeah. when my story about myself and about the past stops changing i'll know that something is profoundly wrong Absolutely. <laughs> you know? um and i like you know even after like i revisited even specific scenes that i had written about in my first book in my second book in my third book i was like all right no more bdsm shit. you're done you're cut off and like what do you think happened? Like, I will, I will <laughs> spoil it for you because it's unspoilable, but because um, I've already written about it a million times. But, um, but there is like the depth of understanding doesn't get shallower, it gets deeper, you know? Absolutely. The more they yeah. it, like, just like you're saying, it's the pacing back and forth across the room and around the apartment. And then it gets into the intricacies of how it affects other people. And then it gets into like, our spiritual life and then it gives into our relationship to the environment you know and yeah. um, it really just radiates outward and and for me like the older i get and the softer i get and the more curious i get the more i want to see that so um i can't wait thank you um so i think it's definitely time for a little q a um if people have questions it looks like they do i'm gonna pull up the little window um, and let's see. So this is Mathu, who's one of my wonderful students. And um, she said she has a question about editing. How do you fight for something you've written and stay confident that it doesn't need editing? How do you know that what you feel is the right choice for the work? I often question myself, ignore my intuition when I'm given edits that I sense are wrong. How can you be sure? Um, I can definitely say that I'm never a hundred percent sure that it's always, I mean, that's what makes it an art in some ways, you know, like there isn't just one answer. There isn't one right way to do it, but I too have betrayed my gut enough times to know that it is that I always regret that, you know? And when, when someone else tells me that my work should be something and I, I just have that, Thing, you know that feeling I just trust it the same way that I've developed my ear for my instinct on the page like when I'm writing and I write a sentence and I think ah, you're kind of showing off and not being honest here like now I just delete the sentence where before it would be like six drafts later I was like yeah I really have to go yeah. you know what I mean so what about you Buffy? um I think the the writing it like a white woman definitely helped me <laughs> um but I also I also um I had conversations with my, another thing about the book is that some of the essays are in first person, second person, third person, um, different perspectives, because it was easier for me to get into the story, especially if I had disassociated from it as it was happening. So going back and having like a, a, a bird's eye view and telling it from that way was more, was helpful to me. 
Um, and I remember when I was writing it and I was turning it in, um, the idea was I was supposed to write it in all these different POVs and then change it to first person. Like just go and do a find and, and search and replace type thing. But yeah. when I did that, it didn't feel right anymore. It didn't feel like my story. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't do what I needed it to do. And I had to tell my editor that if, if what it is you're telling me you want this book to do, um, you have to trust the fact that this is the way it has to happen. Um, there is, uh, there were, there were certain um, sentences that seemed like they just kind of fell off. And she would like write a note like, okay, what's the, what's the, what's the second half of this, of this thought? And I was like, there is none. That's the way it shows up because that's how my mind works. Um, I, 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 I can't construct full sentences sometimes. I, I am struggling to, to make sure that, um, that the way I understand something is by describing everything around it. And, and, and that absence of, 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 of space is what is what, what exists. And you have to trust me and it'll make sense. And, um, but I have to trust me first, right? Um, I had to approach this, like it was the only book I was ever going to write and that I was a white woman and everyone was going to need to, 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 to understand that the way that I was saying it was the only way that it could be said. Doesn't mean that I wasn't open to, um, to edits because I'm always open to edits because I'm always trying to make sure that I and the editor have the same intent, which is to write the best thing possible. And if I started to feel as though, um, like I had my former agent, I didn't think, I wouldn't take his notes because I didn't think that we had the same goal in mind, right? But once I've established that we're doing this together, I trust you more, but you also have to trust me and trust that what I'm doing is making sense. There is a line that I remember too that I fought for um, where I wrote um, uh, something like, um, he thought you was magic. And that was, got, kept getting flagged, like you mean were or is or whatever. And I was like, no, I mean was. And I kept stat, 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 because I was like, the, the, <laughs> The person who is saying it, the the um, the familiarity that we have with each other, the grammatically incorrect relationship that we had, that was has to stay there, and it means so much to me that she trusted that. I mean, one of, that was one of those things that I would have kept studying anyway. I was like, we're going to have to fight for this forever because it's so important that that language, especially as a black person, especially as as, 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 as someone who lives a, a specific kind of experience that was that AAVE, that is just as important as any other punctuation that you need to put in there. So I fought for things like that, but I also conceded when, 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 when something was too flowery and too purple and too, mm. you know, really just going off the deep end to avoid saying the one thing, you know, I have, I have a, I have a hard time writing about sex. And, and, and so I get really like, <laughs> and so stuff like that, she's like, either say it or don't say it. <laughs> and I have to trust that because I know that I suck at writing those kinds of things. I'm not comfortable with it. So it's just about trusting yourself and trusting your intent and, and what it is that you're doing and why. I think that's so wise. And I would love sometimes to just like have a round table where writers all get together and bring our copy edits to talk about the things that creators <laughs> have tried. And I say this, like I have more respect for copy editors than almost any other kind of person. <laughs> um, yeah. It's amazing the things that they have tried to correct in my work where it's like, no, 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 that needs to be that way. It's like, you know, you need to write like a white woman, but don't let the copy editor correct your prose so that it reads like a white woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was very much, um, one of the things that I am terrible at grammar and I'm terrible at punctuation. Um, so if, if, if you need to put a comma there, you can have all the commas you want, all the, all the periods. Like I, I will give all that to you, but I'll fight for for the words and in the in the, the way that they show up on the page. I'll fight you for that. I love it. I love it. Um, okay, so Katie, and this is probably our last question. Sadly, um, is can you talk about how you both navigated finding kindness in writing about other people? Um, yeah, and you know, I can definitely say that um, if I haven't 
gotten to a point where I can write with love, like at, like with love in my heart, like really feeling it for everyone that I'm writing about, like they don't belong in my book. And that doesn't mean that they're going to like what I wrote. <laughs> That's like, it, it rarely means that. Um, yeah. but, but it means that like, it's not, it's not fully cooked. You know what I mean? Because for me, like the process of writing means that I am taking the mess in here and I am making sense of it. And I am, you know, I am introducing it to the air out here and it needs to be, you know, be exposed to like the full breadth of, of my heart and my intellect and what I'm capable of. And there just isn't room for um, bitterness, even if it's coming from a wounded place. Um, it's not ready for other people to see it if I haven't gotten, gotten to that place, you know? And I think for me, the route to that is almost always looking at my own culpability, right? And looking at the ways that I have um, collaborated with the people in my life that in the ways that have caused harm and that have hurt me, you know? Um, and, and also just looking at um, placing people into the greater context, right? Um, they, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that, that we're not accountable for our actions and that they're not accountable for their actions, but I'm not the arbiter of that, you know, I'm, I'm a storyteller, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I concur a hundred percent. And I, and I, I think I learned that from you. Um, you wrote about, um, an abusive relationship and you did it in a way that didn't make me hate the person you were writing about. You know, I, 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 I mean, I hated them for what they did, but, but I saw where you loved them and I saw where you, um, what you saw in them in the first place. Like they weren't just some villain that showed up and, you know, just to ruin your life and then leave. And so I, I took that to heart when I was writing as well. Um, one of the things that I, that I was very clear about is that I, I wrote towards, I, I edited with kindness. Um, I, I was, I could write whatever I wanted in order to get it out, but I had to make sure that when I edited, that I was editing um, with that love for that person um, that I had or have. Uh, I wanted to be kind. I wanted people to, I wanted people to see what I saw in them because mm -hmm. that thing exists regardless of what happened. If there was anyone, like you said, if there's anyone that I couldn't, I couldn't do that for, they didn't go in the book. There were essays that I was like, there's just, this is no reason for this. I'm not here to vilify. I'm also not here mm -hmm. to, and, and going back to one of your earlier questions, um, one of the things that the book really did for me is it empowered me. I didn't feel like a victim of my circumstances. Things weren't happening to me. Mm -hmm. I saw the, the choices that I made that led to certain things. I saw the, 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 the ways that I was unkind to the people in my life who were trying to be kind to me, the ways that I didn't understand uh, someone's history and I was taking everything they did personally as opposed to considering who they were before they even met me. Um, so I only wrote where we met and I didn't try to tell any other stories, but I, but I made sure that I acknowledged that there were other stories or things that happened to these people that, that shaped who they are and shaped how they, how they treated me, but they weren't treating me away because they saw something weak in me or saw something that they hated in me. Um, so I was always very, very clear that I started from a place of love and edited towards kindness to make sure that the people who read the book and were meeting them for the first time um, also saw that love and saw who they were. I don't think that I was successful all the time. Um, I've read some reviews that I was like, oh my God, that is not what I intended at all. And, and, I, and I wish I would have taken a little bit more care in some, some, some instances, but it was always I'm not ashamed or, or afraid of the way that I wrote about anyone because I know that outside of whatever feeling, immediate knee-jerk reactions they have, they know that there was love there and there was a, a, a bent towards kindness as much as possible. And then also this understanding that my, I'm an unreliable narrator. The entire book is about me being unreliable. And, and, and so whatever I say that may land a little bit wrong it's because that's the way it felt in the moment but I acknowledge that now looking back it wasn't that but it wasn't my responsibility to say well now that I think about it 10 years later that's not what I was doing but I hope that that was implied enough right right 
Yeah, that's very wise. Um, I have to say there really is something for me that is so liberating in multiple ways of sort of sitting in the chair and telling the story and taking full accountability for my participation in it and also like fully acknowledging the ways that I was hurt by it. And that combined with the, the sort of um, recognition that I really get more from writing something than anything else that I am here now. I am the author of this story and that I am safe only from a place of safety can I look with tenderness and sensitivity and love at the people who hurt me and that is an incredibly powerful place to be right to be able to be that tender towards someone who hurt you and to look at them and and see that there's good there even if they're dangerous um is really liberating it's much more liberating than villainizing someone or looking at it in a, in a binary kind of way so um, it's been really positive for me yeah um bossy I, I know that we're out of time and i just feel like i could talk to you forever and i'm so moved by your story and your work and i know that you're going to write so many more books so please just just start just stop wondering about it and start doing it um and before we sign off could you just tell people really quickly about seaway and no shame day so that we can funnel some people in that direction um yeah so the seaway project is a nonprofit that i stored started started a few years ago um it's named after seaway monsanto so, you know seaway monsanto was a uh, young girl that i babysat when I first her and her, I babysat her and her brother when I first moved to New York and she was four year old four years old and I grew to be like part of their family. She was part of mine. She was like my little sister. And um I remember at the age of she was about five or six, her mother Dion, um, shortly after I was diagnosed, asked me some questions about me as a child and how did I know? When did I start feeling a certain way? Cause she had noticed some things in Seaway and I thought that it was just amazing that, that she was so vigilant and, 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 and had these questions so early and, and had questions that I wish people would have asked me when I was six and seven years old. And um, she did everything she possibly could for Seaway. She, she, she had her in different programs and, 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 and just gave her this amazing life and, and all this support. But um, unfortunately, uh, uh, at the age of 15, Seaway didn't want to be here anymore. And um, we lost her. And I remember thinking about the fact that despite all the support that she had, um, we, 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 I hate saying we couldn't save her because I think that, that there's, a, there's a choice that, that, that was made and she's free and, and I love that. Um, but there are people who don't have that kind of support and I wanted to offer that to people, I wanted them to be able to tell their own stories. And, and much like the book, I wanted people to, to know that not only are they not alone, but there are people who are also trying to figure it out as well. Um, and so the Seaway Project um, is about people telling their own stories. No Shame Day uh, is a day that people have to, again, tell those stories and get support from thousands of people around the world. And, and one of the most satisfying things has been to see over the last nine years, um, people who tentatively started sharing their stories that first year, and then now eight, nine years later, they're going back and saying, you know, the second year I went to see a therapist and the third I started medication and, and just seeing how far people have come. And, I, and, and, and it's just so many people hold in these stories because they don't feel like they'll be loved or liked or, or um, just, no, just don't feel like they'd be loved if they told them. And no shame being the Seaway Project is a space that people have to say, this is who I am this is what I want out of my life. This is why it's been difficult. And will you love me anyway? And the answer has been yes, more often than not. And I just wanted people to have that, that it's not a lot, but I just want them to, to be able to, to have that space to do that. So that's Seaway, that's No Shame Day. Thank you so much. There's a link yeah. in the chat that Lance just posted to the Seaway Project. Um, thank you, Tin House. Bossy, you're a national treasure. I just love you. Um, Can I? Before I have to I have to interrupt you, because I have to talk about you really quick. Um, you have been you've been so generous with your time, um, with your experience. You immediately ask me anything. That's what you said 
whenever you need to talk, whatever you need. And I've been shy about it, but I've never, I've always been able to know that you were someone who has done the thing and done it the way that, that, that felt, um, I'm not going to cry. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. I'm about to turn my camera off. I'm like a slug under a microscope. (laughs) I just want you to know how important you are to me, to your students, to the world. I think that you are one of the most loving, giving, empathetic, kindest human beings in the world. And you're able to do so much with your work and with your writing and expose things in people that I I read your work and I'm like, I had no idea that I, that I needed any of this and now I have it. And you do it so beautifully and so, I wanna say flawlessly, but I don't mean flawlessly because it is flawed, but it's so beautiful and it's so inspiring. And I just want you to know um, just how important you are to so many people and especially me. I wouldn't have been able to write this book had I not read yours and had I not had that conversation with you and you just even saying, I'm leaving town in an hour, but you want to get coffee. That meant more than anything. And I just want to thank you for that and let you know that here are all your flowers, Melissa. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Bossy. I'm going to go lie down and die now. (laughs) Excuse me. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Bossy Ickby and Melissa Phoebos' work at bossyickby.com and melissaphoebos.com, respectively. If you enjoyed today's conversation, head over to patreon.com slash betweenthecovers to learn about the various benefits of becoming a listener supporter from joining conversations that shape the future of the show to bonus audio from past guests, including Hanif Abdurraqib, Marlon James, Jenny Awful, Garth Greenwell, and Lydia Yuknovich to becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving books months before the general public. All of this and much more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make this show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Ishwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog is Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>